and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. Let me tell you about how I stumbled upon this week's case. I was reading an r slash let's not meet story about two lumbermen being alone in the middle of nowhere and finding some disturbing things that made it clear that they weren't alone. These people ended up finding a tent with inappropriate drawings and photos of children from what I remember. And while sleeping one night, these two men were attacked and nearly killed by two other men who weren't supposed to be there. The OP of this story also mentions the fact that a little boy had gone missing from this area around the same time, and after reading all of this, I wanted to fact check it and see if a kid had disappeared from the area, just try to get more information and see if this was a true story. The OP didn't give a specific date, just early 90s, and that's what led me to this case which I don't think has any relation to this Reddit story, but once I started reading it, I was like, wow, how have I never heard of this? David Brown, aka Nathaniel Bar Jonah, a suspected serial killer, child eater, cannibal. This case is extremely disturbing and involves descriptions of abuse and violence against children, so if that is something you cannot tolerate or listen to at all, please do not listen to this episode. When I was researching this case, my jaw just continued to drop because of how many times this man was able to slip through the cracks and avoid real consequences. It's actually hard to believe the details of this case. So before I start this case, I want to talk about largest and most important source for this episode, and that was Dr. Espy's book, Eat the Evidence. And Dr. Espy has interviewed more than 30 serial murderers throughout the world, including Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy, and he was at one point assigned to be the lead evaluator for Nathaniel Barjona, aka David Brown. And this book came together from hundreds of hours of exclusive interviews with Nathaniel Barjona, dozens of others who either knew or were involved with him, investigators, prosecutors, and a bunch of other people and documents. So you'll hear me referring to Dr. Espy's writings a lot, because it's basically the largest collection of information about this case and all cases relating to Nathaniel Barjona that exists, I believe. But before we dive in, I'm going to do an update about a recent case. I talked about this case in another intro of a different episode very recently, so you probably remember or you've probably heard of 19-year-old Trent Learcamp. On Monday morning, two adults and three teenagers were charged in relation to this case. 19-year-old Trent Learcamp was left at a Georgia hospital barely breathing and covered in urine and spray paint last month in a case that sparked outrage in the local community. And this article is from Stephanie K. Barr of BuzzFeed News. So, James C. Strother and his wife, Lauren, surrendered and were booked into the Glen County Detention Center on misdemeanor charges of maintaining a disorderly house and contributing to the delinquency or dependency of a minor. 17-year-old Edward Hobby was booked on a misdemeanor battery charge, but police said his arrest stemmed from a separate incident involving a different victim that was associated with this investigation. And police have filed misdemeanor charges against two other juveniles as well. And these adults and all of these teens were at the house that this alleged torture of Trent took place. And police have since dispelled several rumors, including that Trent was autistic or that he had been defecated on. And police are saying that Trent was not tortured. 
The last time I talked about this case, I mentioned a photo of Trent circulating on social media where he looks to be duct taped to a chair and is being sprayed with a hose. But police are saying that Trent consented to being washed off and that happened after an egg fight with a group of high school students. Police are saying he was not tortured and said that Trent voluntarily drank alcohol until he blacked out. Quote, no one poured alcohol down his throat or forced him to drink it. No one pushed a funnel down his throat. No one urinated on him. End quote. So after police announced all of this, the family came out and refuted police. The family released a statement and said that Trent had clearly been humiliated and made to be the joke of social media videos and called the teen's alleged treatment of him disgusting. Quote, a vulnerable 19-year-old was made to be a sick joke of someone's disgusting fun and games. They also said it is hard to believe and it was the first the family heard that he consented to being hosed down. He was visibly passed out in the video while being hosed. Doesn't seem to make sense someone would consent. The family also said that they have reached back out to investigators. The first details of this case that we heard and the allegations were extremely disturbing and the pictures that were circulating on social media were very disturbing. So I find it hard to believe that Trent was consenting to all of this, especially considering he was very intoxicated. But that's an update on that case. Let's dive into the episode. In 1956, at the age of 41, Tyra Brown became pregnant with her third and final child. This baby, she felt, was different. It wasn't moving around in her stomach as much as the others had. During her first trimester, Tyra was sitting at a red light when a car slammed into the back of her. Her doctor told her the baby was fine, but Tyra had to wear a neck brace for the remainder of her pregnancy. On February 15, 1957, Tyra gave birth in Worcester, Massachusetts. She named him David Paul Brown. Like he was inside the womb, Tyra said David was different from her other kids. He slept longer, and no matter how much she fed him, he was always wanting more. When he was awake, all he did was cry, and he didn't particularly like being picked up or touched at all. It's been theorized that David might have experienced hydrocephalus in the first weeks of his life. In the 1950s, children with this condition were called waterheads. Hydrocephalus happens when an excess of spinal fluid builds up inside the skull, and it's especially dangerous for a child's development because it can cause their brain to contort from its natural shape. One of the symptoms of this is an abnormally large head size for the child's age. Dr. Epsi would later claim that baby photos of David showed characteristics of a waterhead. Another instance of possible brain damage, according to Dr. Espy, occurred when David was just six months old. For four days, he had a fever that topped 106 degrees Fahrenheit, 41 degrees Celsius. Now, Dr. Espy writes that high fevers are the main culprits of early brain damage in infants, and I immediately believed it when I read it. But when I looked it up, all of the top results were saying that high fevers do not cause brain damage in infants, and that it's a common myth. Basically, their body temperature would have to get up to 108, and the only way that would happen is if a child was left in a hot car for too long, or some other environmental circumstance. I couldn't find anything confirming what Dr. Espy wrote, but hey, if you're a doctor and you're listening to this right now, or you're very knowledgeable about this topic specifically, please let me know. Anyways, it was weeks after this fever that Tyra noticed for the first time that David's eyes were different colors. One was blue, the other was brown. This is called heterochromia and it's often due to genetics or something happening in the womb when the eyes are forming. There's three different types of heterochromia. 
complete heterochromia, which David Brown has, where the eyes are two different colors completely, sectoral heterochromia, where one eye has a little splotch of color that's different from the rest, and central heterochromia, which I didn't know was a thing until I was researching this, and I think that I have this. This is characterized by having two different colors in the same iris. The inner ring often seems to have spikes of different colors that radiate from the pupil. Now let's talk about David's relationship with his father. It wasn't good from the start. Tyra recalled Philip mocking the size of their son's genitals, beating him with belts or fists, and hating him for being quote-unquote queer. And while David never specifically told his father his sexuality, Philip believed his son was gay, at least different, and hated him for it. Apparently his co-workers believed it as well, and would poke at Philip for having a queer son. David was an outcast in his family and to pretty much everyone around him. He's remembered by childhood acquaintances as an outcast, a chubby mama's boy. David's peers bullied him to the point where he preferred hanging out with kids younger than him, so he could be seen as the mature one and not looked down at. Another reason kids his age might have wanted to steer clear was the fact that they were possibly afraid of him. For six years of David's childhood, his father moved the family to Lantana, Florida for a job opportunity. It was here in July of 1964 that seven-year-old David would commit one of his first cruel acts on another human. He invited his neighbor over, a five-year-old girl named Mary, to come over and play with the Ouija board he'd received for his birthday. Mary and David were down in the basement together when Tyra suddenly heard a commotion. She went down the stairs only to find her son with his hands wrapped around Mary's neck, violently shaking and choking her. Tyra said she had to scream seven times to get David to finally let go, and when he did, he claimed it was Mary who had made him do it. A few years later, the Browns packed up and moved to Webster, Massachusetts, just south of a lake that I will not even attempt to pronounce myself because it has over 40 letters and I struggled to pronounce simple English words. This is how it's pronounced. Lake Chargagagog Manchowgagog Chowbunagungamaug. Apparently, some locals just call it Lake Webster. One of David's childhood friends, James, recalled growing up with him on Elaine Street in Webster. He described him similarly to how David's siblings and early childhood friends did. David was an introvert, and his actions became more and more strange as he got older. He was only really concerned about himself, unless he saw an opportunity to get something out of an interaction with someone else. James ended up being on the receiving end of one of David's odd, violent outbursts. One day, David hopped on a lawnmower and tried to run him over. And I don't really need to explain why this would be terrifying. We've all heard horror stories of people having limbs chopped off or chopped up because of that. This led to the boys getting into a fight. James starts punching David. David tries to choke James. And according to James, he came out on top of this struggle. This next story about David's childhood is his own account. He claimed at age 10, he and his 8-year-old friend Kevin were jumped in the woods when suddenly eight boys ran out of some bushes. David claimed that while some of them held him down, one boy orally raped him. They proceeded to rip off his pants and sodomize him with wooden sticks and a broom handle. At the same time, his friend Kevin was stripped and the boys poured gasoline on his naked body while he was bound to a tree. David claims he heroically broke out of the boy's grip and saved his friend Kevin after scaring them all away. These kinds of injuries David described having would have required immediate medical attention. But when Tyra heard about the story for the first time, she said it was a lie. Quote, it never happened. He made it up. 
It's hard to believe someone would make up such a disturbing, traumatic experience, but David had a long history of lying about anything, especially when it meant he could get sympathy from someone or have some sort of advantage. Fast forward a few years, and by the time David Brown is 15, his family is struggling financially. Philip had been supporting the family, but due to a heart condition, he had to stop working earlier than he thought. This left little to no income for the family of five, but I'm also pretty sure that at this point David's older siblings had moved out and started careers or were going to college, so basically it was just the family of three. And this is when David's behavior really gets disturbing. Next door to the Browns lived the DuPont family. One day, someone started writing messages in chalk outside their home. They were directed towards the DuPont brothers, aged 9 and 10. The family thought at first it was a harmless prank, someone trying to make friends, but then they got a letter in the mail. It was made up of words cut from a magazine to disguise the sender's handwriting, and it was addressed to the young boys. It read, quote, Come to the cemetery at 6 o'clock, and I'll give you $20 apiece, but don't tell your mother and father. The DuPont parents apparently immediately called the police after reading the letter, thinking a child predator was trying to meet up with their kids. At 6 p.m. sharp, police showed up to the graveyard and found 15-year-old David hiding behind a tombstone. He admitted to sending the letter. That's when Tyra Brown came to the rescue and begged the boy's mother, Dolly, not to press charges. Dolly complied, but told her children to stay away from the neighbors, especially David Brown. After all, why would an older teen want to secretly meet up with some young boys in a cemetery? Surely not for anything good. For whatever reason, David thought they just got off on the wrong foot. And the very next day, he showed up at the DuPont's front door with a bouquet of flowers and asked Dolly if her sons wanted to join his family for a day at the beach. Dolly told him absolutely not. David's response was strange, to say the least. He said, I have two different shades of eyes. That means I'm insane. That account of this story is from Peter Davidson's writing published in 2006. In Dr. Espy's book, he writes that David Brown signed his name at the bottom of these disturbing letters, and it was Dolly who marched over to the home and told Tyra about the situation. Dolly said there would be consequences if David didn't stop, but there's no mention of police being called. Either way, whichever story is true, in both of these accounts, David Brown doesn't face any real consequences trying to lure in young boys. And at this point in the episode, you probably have an idea of what David's plans were for the young boys. According to David, his plan was to meet the boys in the cemetery, choke them to death under a bunch of thorn trees, then cut them up to hide the evidence. Fast forward a few years. It's 1975, and David is 18 years old. His father, Philip, passed away the year prior, and David's just graduated from Bay Path Vocational Technical School. By this time, he apparently stopped messing with the DuPont brothers and moved on to luring in children he was a stranger to. In March of that year, an eight-year-old blonde-headed boy named Richard made his way to school. Suddenly, a white station wagon pulled up to him on the sidewalk, and a large man jumped out who identified himself as a policeman. He told Richard to come with him immediately. His mother had been hurt, and he needed to get to her right away. Richard knew not to get in the car with strangers, but this man had a police badge pinned to his pocket. In the eyes of an eight-year-old, this man seemed legit, and he was being very demanding and he believed this man, even though he had talked to his mother less than 30 minutes ago. Richie was forced into the passenger seat of the car and buckled in. A woman in the neighborhood happened to witness this entire ordeal and thought it was suspicious, so she called police, and an officer was dispatched to check it out. 
The woman's gut feeling was right, because this man wasn't a police officer. It was David Brown. David is now driving down the street with Richie in the passenger side when he passes the school. He ends up driving through the crosswalk when a student has his flag out for students to cross. David doesn't care. He speeds away. The student reports the incident to a teacher. David eventually makes it to an outlet mall where a few cars are around and parks. And this is about to get very disturbing and graphic. David tells the boy to take his clothes off, but Richie refuses. He then starts choking and shaking Richie violently with one hand, and with the other, David reaches in his pants and squeezes the child's privates so hard that Richie soils himself. David gets furious that this boy has urinated and defecated in his mother's car and starts choking the boy again, this time with both hands. He released briefly only to allow him to puke on the floor of the car. At this point, eight-year-old Richie's neck and face were bruised and swollen. Suddenly, a patrol car driving by notices a white station wagon separated from the rest of the cars in the lot. It matched the vehicle description given by a woman who'd witnessed Richie's abduction. After turning on his lights and calling for backup, the officer jumped out of his car and pointed his gun at David Brown, ordering him out of the vehicle. Within seconds, David was surrounded by several officers and taken to the ground. Richie was quickly taken to the Hubbard Surgical Hospital, where he recovered for two days. His attacker was taken to the Webster Police Station and charged with felony kidnapping, assault and battery, and sexual assault of a minor. David's odd reasoning for kidnapping this little eight-year-old boy was that Richie reminded him of a man who'd sold his mother a car with sawdust in the transmission to make it run smoother. In Dr. Espy's book, he acknowledges that David Brown was a minor at the time, but David was born in February of 1957, and this crime took place in March of 1975, making him 18 years old. I'm not sure what's going on here, but for whatever reason, David wasn't charged as an adult and was released into his mother's custody. Tyra believed her son could be suicidal, so she decided to send him to a psychiatric hospital. On April 4th, David was sent to St. Vincent and put under the care of psychiatrist Dr. Jesse Arnold. David told her that he had blacked out during the entire assault and kidnapping. He didn't remember almost choking the boy to death. After 18 days of treatment, David was released and placed on a year of supervised probation. Within a couple weeks of his release from the hospital, David kidnapped another child. Well, possibly kidnapped another child. This time, a nine-year-old girl named Mary. Real quick, though, I do want to point out something that I just found while doing some research. And it might be another factor that points to Dr. Espy's dates being wrong about when David committed these acts. David Brown's name doesn't appear in any of the newspaper articles of the time about kidnapping a child. If he was an adult, he would definitely be all over the news. And he would have faced legitimate jail time for his actions. So my personal theory is that the kidnapping of Richie could have happened in March of 1974, not 1975. Another reason I think that is a huge possibility is because Dr. Espy talks about the second kidnapping as if it happened after Richie's. But Mary was taken by David Brown in May of 1974. This is also also the time David would be graduating high school, which Dr. S.B. mentions. And there's a newspaper article that correlates with this date. Sorry about the little rant about dates, but I just hate not having clarity about when things are taking place, and I want you all to have the most truthful version of this case. It also could be an issue with Scribd.com, which I'm reading this book on. It hasn't been the best format for reading books and listening to audiobooks, so. But anyways, let's get back to David's second kidnapping. 
On May 8, 1974, nine-year-old Mary was walking home around 4 p.m. in South Woodstock, Connecticut. This was just a 20-minute drive from David's home in Webster. David is driving his mother's station wagon dressed as a police officer when he spots Mary and pulls up alongside her. He tells Mary her mother has been hurt. She needs to come with him right away. After driving for a short period of time, David began hitting Mary in the face with some sort of instrument. The girl was so frightened, she urinated on herself and vomited. Angry about another child ruining his mother's car, David threw her from the car onto the sidewalk, violently. A passerby witnessed this and called police. Mary was taken to the Day Kimball Hospital and treated for her wounds. According to Dr. Espy, a witness was able to take down David's license plate, and within days, police arrived at Tyra's door to arrest her son. Mary's mother refused to let her testify, and somehow this incident didn't get back to David's parole officer. There's also a third potential kidnapping that Dr. Espy alludes to David possibly being involved in. In his book, he states that in 1974, 10-year-old Susan Terry was found deceased on the side of the road. She was bound, beaten, nude, and she'd been strangled to death. So I spent about 30 minutes looking through Google and the newspaper archives, and I couldn't find any incident relating to a girl named Susan Terry. I couldn't find an obituary or anything. And if this was a young girl who'd been murdered and her killer was never found, I feel like it would have been reported on frequently, if not, you know, just at least one time. Maybe Dr. Espy mixed up the dates or spelled her name wrong, but either way, I couldn't find anything about it. And I will come back to this in a moment. Moving on, David Brown was officially let off probation in May of 1976. That year, he enrolled in Valley Forge Christian College in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. After getting into a confrontation with the college's preacher about his poor dress during service, David was sent to the dean's office. He was seen as such a problem on campus, and because his grades were also horrible, the dean decided to kick him out of school. He moved back in with his mother and jumped jobs frequently because coworkers hated him. Managers thought he was difficult, and David just didn't want to work. On the morning of September 23rd, 1977, David told Tyra over breakfast that he was going to meet some friends later and needed to borrow her car. He was vague about the situation, and his mother thought this was odd because David didn't really have a lot of friends. In his brother's old army duffel bag, he packed a hunting knife, rope, a dark blue police jacket, a fake silver police badge, and two pairs of handcuffs. After work, David arrived in the White City Theater in Shrewsbury around 10 p.m., where he saw two teenage boys were exiting a movie. He pulled up to them, flashed his fake badge, and demanded to know their names. Billy and Alan, both 13 years old, were told to get inside the vehicle so he could question them. David started lecturing them about being out so late, saying he was going to drive them home when he suddenly became enraged and punched Alan, giving him a bloody nose. Both boys started to cry and repeatedly ask where the officer was taking them, stating they hadn't done anything wrong. After a few minutes of driving, David pulled off on a dirt road and grabbed his hunting knife before placing both boys in handcuffs. David didn't have a key for these handcuffs. He didn't plan on ever taking them off. After a couple hours more of driving, he took the boys back to the outdoor antique market where he'd worked earlier that day. It was dark now, and the only thing left was empty vendor tents. David parked beside his canopy and threw the boys inside before closing the tent flap, completely closing them off from the outside world. He tied the boys up and demanded they undress if they ever wanted to see their parents again. They refused. David went to plan B. He forced the boys back into the car and drove to a vacant roadside camp area off Route 20. 
Alan was ripped out of the car by his hair and forced onto the ground. David began violently choking him, then repeatedly kicked him in the ribs. David, who stood 5 foot 7 inches tall and weighed 375 pounds, then sat on Alan's chest and started bouncing up and down, crushing the boy with his weight. At some point, Alan was on the verge of taking his last breath, and David believed he had killed him, so he moved on to the other teen, Billy. David dragged him out of the back seat and threw him by the neck into the trunk before driving away. After David's taillights were far enough away, Alan managed to get on his feet and start looking for help. On the campgrounds, Alan limped towards one of the only buildings that had some lights on. He pounded on the front door until the youth director of the campgrounds rushed to answer. He thought it was unusual that someone was banging on his door this late at night and was shocked at what he found. 13-year-old Alan handcuffed, bloody, and begging for help stating they'd been kidnapped by a police officer, and his friend Billy was now dead in the back of his trunk. The youth director immediately called 911. A state trooper arrived shortly after, and Alan had to quickly tell his story again. He gave a description of the fake officer and the car he'd abducted him in. Numerous officers were dispatched to start searching the surrounding area. It was at this point that David had turned his car around and started heading back to the spot he left Alan. He'd messed up. He didn't want to leave the boy's body there out in the open. David didn't know that Alan had survived, and the real police officers were closing in on him. As he turned onto the dirt road leading to the campground, an officer saw his car from a distance and floored it. David heard the police siren behind him and stepped on the gas, but he didn't make it much further. At a curve on the road, David was forced into some thick brush and ordered out of the vehicle. The officer holstered his weapon and aggressively handcuffed the fake officer, as Billy's muffled screams were heard from the trunk. Officers unlocked the trunk and found him handcuffed and beaten, but to their relief, Billy was alive. At 12.40 a.m., David Brown was taken to the police station where he wrote and signed a confession. That confession apparently differed from what had actually transpired that night, and I will be reading to you all the entire confession. So David's bail was set at $50,000, and hours later he appeared before a judge charged with numerous counts. Two counts of kidnapping, two counts of attempted murder, two counts of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, two moral offenses, impersonating a police officer, and various motor vehicle charges. The hearing was set for October 4th, but was eventually pushed back to December so David could be interviewed by a psychiatrist ahead of trial. At the Bridgewater State Hospital, Dr. Cronin evaluated him for just 30 minutes. This is what he wrote in his report. He clearly acknowledges that he has trouble controlling his impulses towards young boys. He also acknowledges that two years prior to these charges, he was arrested on similar ones. There is no evidence to support the possibility that he enters any type of disassociative estate. His view of himself is quite fragmented. Although he lacks the glib social facility stereotypically associated with psychopaths, there is considerable evidence to suggest a primary diagnosis of psychopathic personality. He has never internalized a set of well-developed moral rules by which he lives. His interactive ability is weak, and he does not easily articulate the consequences of his actions. His behavior is quite impulsive. Despite his psychopathic tendencies, his ego function has other features more typically associated with borderline personality. Among these features are his poor, defended, raw, oral, aggressive impulses. His characteristic modes of behavior have resulted in a failure to crystallize into a more integrated personality structure. He feels he has shamed his mother. He has also never successfully separated psychologically from early familial objects and longs to remain tied to them forever. 
His therapy should focus on getting him to experience guilt and to develop a more adaptive conscience. While awaiting his trial, an officer sat down to interview David Brown about the attempted murder of the two boys. Towards the end of the session, David voluntarily brought up the name of another child who'd been murdered. And it wasn't 10-year-old Susan Terry. It was 12-year-old Kathleen Terry. I was able to find the name Kathleen because Dr. Espy mentioned the police department investigating the case. I'm not sure why he got the girl's name and age wrong or if this was intentional. That little piece of information about the police department allowed me to find a trail to a newspaper archive of this event. Kathleen Terry was last seen on July 19, 1974, around 10.30 a.m., when she left the Mashapog Park campgrounds on her bicycle to visit a friend who lived nearby. Searchers found her body the following day at 9.30 a.m. in a clump of pine trees, located 400 yards away from Route 15, just a mile from the campgrounds. This is what the Boston Globe reported. Quote, State police said the girl's body was found lying face up and that her head had been battered. She was partially clothed. Kathleen was a 7th grade honor student at St. Anne's School in Sturbridge. Kathleen had been camping with her parents, who had planned to return home today. State police said Kathleen's 10-speed bicycle was found in a heavily wooded area at 6 p.m. Friday. Police believe the bicycle was thrown into the woods because many of the tree branches were broken. For this tiny town of less than 3,000, the news of Kathleen's death comes as a shock. One man said, quote, Everybody here knows everybody pretty much, and everybody sure knew Kathy and loved her because she was such a pleasant kid to talk to. End quote. In a coroner's report released shortly after, the cause of Kathleen's death was said to be a blow or blows to the head from a blunt instrument, and they concluded that she was not sexually assaulted. Over a year later, in December of 1975, it was reported that a 31-year-old man was being questioned about Kathleen's murder. This man had been charged for the murder of a 23-year-old woman found shot in 1969. That turned out to be another dead end for police, because by the end of 1977, Kathleen Terry's murder remained unsolved. And on December 14th of that year, David Brown pleaded guilty to attempted murder and kidnapping. His handwritten confession was read in court, and just get ready because this is a long one. On Friday, the 23rd of September, 1977, I was in the White City parking lot on Route 9 in Shrewsbury. It was probably between 9.30 and 10 p.m. I was going pretty slow through the parking lot. As I was driving out of the lot, I saw two boys, about 13 years old, walking up near the exit. I pulled up beside them and stopped the car. I rolled down the passenger side window and flashed my police badge at the boys and ordered them into the car. One of the boys opened the side door and said, What did we do? He then asked me to give them a ride home. I told them they shouldn't be out so late alone. I pulled out of the parking lot and asked the boys where they lived. They told me and I headed in that direction. After we drove about two miles, one of the boys said, You have to go down this way to get to my house. You're going past where you have to turn. I went around the bend and kept driving. The boys then started yelling something about, Where are you taking us? I pulled into an alley and reached into my blue police jacket and brought out a hunting knife. That shut them up pretty quick. I put the knife down beside me and told them to keep their mouths shut. I told them to lean over and put their hands behind their backs. I then cuffed them. Then they started whimpering or something like that. I went down some back roads and came out on Route 9, and then took a side road and kept driving around for about two hours. While I was driving, the boys were crying and asking stupid questions like, Where are you taking us? Stuff like that. I didn't give them any answers. I went down some more roads and came to Route 29, and took them to Charlton. I pulled up to Bev's flea market behind a tent I had put up about four hours before. I opened the car door and helped the kids out of the car. 
They asked me if I'd take the handcuffs off. I told them I would, but I would kill the first one I caught if they ran. I wanted them to think each other's lives was dependent on the other. I made them sit down on the grass under the tent. There wasn't anyone around at that time of night, and it was a big field, so they couldn't run far without me seeing them even if they did take off. But I weigh 375 pounds, so it would have been pretty difficult for me to catch them if they really started running. But they were pretty scared, so I wasn't too worried about them taking off. Then the bigger of the two started asking me, when are we going home, and annoying stuff like that. I told them in a little while or so, not really meaning it. Then I looked at one of them and said, if you want to go home bad enough, take off your clothes. They said no. We were under the tent about 10 or 15 minutes. I don't really know for sure. The boys said they were cold. I said if you want to get warmer, you have to get back in the car. They were told to stand up and put their hands behind their backs. I then re-handcuffed them. I escorted them back to the car and put them in the back seat and put the heat on so they would be comfortable. We drove under Route 20 and back under the road that led to the campground. That's when I decided they could identify me and they would have to die. I stopped the car and made the bigger boy come out and the smaller boy remain in the car. I ordered him to remain put. I took the larger boy into the wooded area and immediately started to strangle him with my hands around his throat. I guess mainly because he could identify me and I wanted to kill him. After a few minutes, he went limp. I assumed he was dead. I went back and got the smaller boy out of the car and started strangling him and trying to break his neck with the crook of my arm. He went limp pretty quick. I opened the trunk and shoved him in. I went back into the woods and drug out the bigger boy and shoved him into the trunk also. It was hard work dragging the bigger boy out of the woods and pushing him over the lip of the trunk. It got me out of breath. I closed the lid of the trunk and drove back onto Route 20. I was looking for a place to bury the boys when I looked into the rearview mirror and observed that a Massachusetts Highway Patrol car was following me. I kept on driving the speed limit and was looking for a place to turn around without arousing suspicion. Suddenly, the MHP officer turned on his lights and I immediately pulled over without incident. I looked into the rearview mirror and saw the officer get out of the car with his sidearm drawn. Get out of the car with your hands up now. I did as I was ordered. When I opened the car door, I heard the boys screaming and kicking inside the lid of the trunk. The officer then came running up and shoved me pretty hard against the car and jerked my hands behind my back and handcuffed me. He then shoved me down on my knees and pushed my head into the gravel and told me not to move, which I did not. He reached in and turned off the car, took the keys and opened the trunk. I thought the boys had been dead. If they were, the MHP officer would not have seen the trunk lid bouncing around and then used that as an excuse to pull me over. I wouldn't be completing this statement right now, and I would be free and not facing criminal charges. I wanted on the record that the officer yelled and harshly pushed me into the gravel roadway, and that the boys really dented the trunk lid of my car. I think I should be compensated for the damage they caused. I cooperated fully with the MHP officer, and how he treated me was not called for. So parts of this confession contradict what Dr. Espy wrote about how David Brown was caught by police. David said an officer happened to see his trunk bouncing up and down, while Dr. Espy wrote that one of the boys was left behind for dead and managed to get help. I think Dr. Espy's versions of events is the correct one, because several news articles stated that one of the boys did manage to escape by playing dead. And it seems more likely that David wanted the court to believe he was wrongfully pulled over, detained, and searched. Ultimately, a judge sentenced David Brown to the maximum, 18 to 20 years in prison. He spent two years at the Massachusetts Correctional Institute before transferring to Bridgewater State Hospital, BSH. David really wanted this, because the staff and setting was much more relaxed. 
His mother, Tyra, advocated for this permanent transfer through dozens of letters and phone calls. On March 6, 1979, David got his wish. Dr. Daniel Way recommended that he be given a full clinical evaluation to determine if he was a sexually dangerous person. Dr. Espy describes BSH as the graduate school for the pedophile community. Quote, You go in as a freshman child molester and come out with a doctorate in pedophilia. It was a place where snakes went to shed their skin. In late July, two psychologists, both named Robert, evaluated David Brown and determined that he was, in fact, a predator and a sexually dangerous person. He should remain at the hospital for treatment. If David hadn't been transferred there, he would have to serve at least 10 years of his sentence in order to possibly be granted parole. The Department of Corrections said that he couldn't be considered for parole until October of 1989, but because David was now permanently at this hospital, his time there was under the discretion of psychologists. He could walk out the following week, or he could remain there for the rest of his life. Dr. Robert Moore and Dr. Robert Levy both believed David was extremely dangerous and should never be released from state custody, and they were a part of the reason that David wasn't paroled after 10 years had passed. And that brings us to March 22nd, 1984, an important date in David Brown's life, where he would attempt to shred some snakeskin, like Dr. Espy said. David decided to change his name from David Brown to Nathaniel Benjamin Levi Bar Jonah. He often shortened it to just Nathaniel Bar Jonah. It's not crystal clear why David made this change, but he apparently told friends and relatives he adopted this Jewish name because he wanted to know what it felt like to be discriminated against. So, from this point forward in the episode, you'll hear me referring to him as David Brown or Nathaniel Barjona or Barjona or David. Just know that it is all the same sick individual. Fast forward another six years to January of 1990, and Barjona is trying to get parole and released from custody. A forensic psychologist for the court consults with him, and David tells her he wants to get out and study journalism, that he has a place to stay with his brother in Montana, and he wants to patent some board games he designed over the years in prison. This psychologist came to the conclusion that Barjona was still a sexually dangerous person who, if released back into the community, would reoffend. In late January and early February, another forensic psychologist, Dr. Bard, attempted to schedule an evaluation of Barjona, which he ultimately refused. However, he did agree to let Dr. Bard go through his prior records and notes to come to a conclusion of some kind. Dr. Espy described the psychologist's notes in his book. Quote, he noted that Barjona was diagnosed as a borderline personality disorder with psychopathic features. It was also noted that his fantasies were highly bizarre in nature and included an interest in the taste of human flesh, methods of torture, and dissection. His progress at BSH was minimal, even though he had been there for 13 years. Barjona was uncooperative and refused to become involved in most of the treatment opportunities he was offered. David was furious at the psychologist for not writing a report in his favor, but he unfortunately had another trick up his sleeve. Over the years, Tyra, who was now about to be in her 70s, had been visiting him every week, driving 180 miles round trip to see Mama's little boy. He pestered her for money, food, and most of all, finding a way to get him out of prison. Barjona wanted to be evaluated by Christian psychologists, ones that were outside of this facility and state government hires. The courts granted his request in November of 1990, 
So Tyra and Bar Jonah's brother Bob worked together to find the perfect ones. These psychologists were far from free, and Bob reportedly wrote a check of roughly $10,000 to hire these Christian psychologists to evaluate his child molesting brother. To Dr. Ober and Dr. Schweitzer, Bar Jonah spun a few tales that made him appear as if he was the victim of his own actions. Remember David's childhood story when he claimed he'd been gang raped by a bunch of teens but managed to save his friend Kevin? That was one of the stories he told the psychologist, which his mother would later say had absolutely never happened. Despite targeting and abducting young boys, Barjona also claimed he was only interested in women his age and had a fiancé on the outside waiting for him. That was actually true, he had been writing a woman from prison, but only because she had two sons. The psychologist also took his word when he told them that he had been sodomized by eight black prison guards in 1989. David said this incident was videotaped and he doesn't know how he made it out alive. Dr. Ober wrote, This incident demonstrates his ability to handle stress as a result of perceived sexual trauma and to control his impulses. It is the opinion of this evaluator that Mr. Barjona is not at this time likely to victimize others due to his uncontrolled desires. Dr. Ober apparently also didn't administer any psychological test instruments. He kind of just listened to David's claims and came to a conclusion off the top of his head. Dr. Schweitzer, however, did administer three psychological tests. These were tests, though, that Barjona had been given numerous times and could adjust his answers to achieve his desired result. And that's exactly what happened, because Dr. Schweitzer determined there was no evidence of a psychotic thinking style or sadistic or aggressive preoccupation with sexual ideation. The conclusion of these Christian psychologists who had been paid thousands of dollars was a 180 from the conclusions of numerous psychologists who had evaluated Nathaniel Barjona. Dr. Schweitzer said his risk of reoffending was minimal. On February 12, 1991, the doctors appeared before Judge Walter E. Steele, who agreed with their conclusions and ordered the release of Nathaniel Barjona from state custody. Unfortunately for him, though, the process wasn't immediate, and he wasn't officially released until six months later in July. He would eventually be paid $6,000 by the state because of that. So, let's just recoup a little bit, because a lot has happened. By this point in his life, Barjona has strangled a five-year-old girl as a child. At 15, he attempted to lure his neighbors, two young boys, to a cemetery so he could rape and murder them. Before the age of 18, he abducted an eight-year-old boy, a nine-year-old girl, and possibly a 12-year-old girl who was found deceased. And finally, around the age of 20, Barjona abducted and nearly killed two 13-year-old boys. For all of that, most of which occurred before he was a legal adult and unknown to police, got him just 14 years in prison. If he had spent all of those years in a legit, regular prison, he definitely would not have had a good time, because inmates do not take kindly to child molesters. But now, David Brown, aka Nathaniel Barjona, is free, and he only managed to restrain himself from hurting another child for a month before spotting a seven-year-old boy unattended in the back seat of a car on August 9th in Oxford, Massachusetts. As the blonde-headed boy waited for his mother to send a package at the post office, Bar Jonah spotted him as he cut through the parking lot on one of his daily walks. He opened the door and climbed on top of the boy, smothering him with his body. Within moments, the boy's mother was ripping him out of the car and striking him in the face for touching her child. David took off down the street in the pouring rain, while the woman comforted her traumatized son. 
At the hospital, the police officer who took a statement from the mother recognized the description of the attacker as David Brown. He'd been involved in or heard of his arrest from 15 years prior for the attempted murder of two young boys. Police showed up at Tyra's door around 3 p.m. and took him down to the station to talk. Bar Jonah didn't deny getting into the car, but he explained that he simply wanted to get out of the rain. In a handwritten confession, though, he admitted to having the intention of killing the child. When the case came up with prosecutors, they thought probation would be most appropriate. He was charged with assault and battery and entering a motor vehicle with the intent to commit a felony. The judge was going to send Bar Jonah back to prison for good, but the prosecutors had already reached a deal, two years of probation. As a part of this plea, he was required to leave Massachusetts and move into one of his brother's properties in Great Falls, Montana. But instead of reporting to the probation office directly after this sentence, like the judge told him to do, David started preparing for his new life. On August 29th, he set out for Montana with a trailer, towing all of his belongings behind. His 75-year-old mother drove most of the way, which took about three weeks in total. Shortly after his arrival, Barjona started building up his own antique business and randomly wrote a letter to the local paper about a miracle he'd experienced. Quote, I've seen God take a hopeless situation like when all avenues were closed, it seemed like I'd never be released. Yet God told me I would, and I believed him, even though the evidence of my release was not there. Then totally out of left field, I got two, yes two, Christian psychiatrists who believed in me. That was a miracle in itself, to find two Christians in that profession in Massachusetts. The state had a lot of evidence on their side, yet the judge sided with me. End quote. Bar Jonah wasn't going to stop preying on children. In fact, moving to the small town of Great Falls, Montana was perfect for him because the community and officers were unfamiliar with his face. He specifically targeted single women with younger boys. He grew close to them through his antique business, selling toy guns and other trinkets, and his regular attendance to church. He would use religion as a way to disarm these women and groom them into having alone time with their children. After meeting a woman named Julie Watkins in August of 92, Bar Jonah began babysitting this child after school three months later, from November to June of the following year. And on December 18, 1993, Julie asked him for the first time to babysit her nine-year-old son, Sean, overnight so she and her current boyfriend could attend a Christmas party. In Julie's eyes, Bar Jonah was a harmless Christian man, and her son adored him. So, of course, he happily let Sean spend the night. Julie picked her son up the following afternoon at 3 p.m. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Bar Jonah told her that they had fun, that he could babysit Sean overnight any time. Shortly after this, Sean started acting strangely. At one point, a friend told Julie she saw her son opening his pants and pulling out his privates in front of her on the couch. Julie pulled him into a separate room and explained that it wasn't appropriate, but Sean continued to do this as they were talking, and he told her that his privates were itchy and that they hurt. When Julie took a look, she noticed that her son's privates were red and swollen. After some time, Sean confided in his mother that Bar Jonah had been the one touching him, and the reason he had kept this from her for weeks, possibly months, is because Bar Jonah told this nine-year-old boy not to tell anyone about what he was doing, and that if he did, Sean would be responsible for sending him back to prison forever. Julie called her pastor first, who in turn called David's brother Bob. Bob and the pastor knocked on Bar Jonah's door, attempting to sort out what happened. He didn't answer. The following day, Tyra and Bob knocked on his door together and finally got an answer. 
Barjona told his family he didn't remember touching Sean, but that if he had, he must have blacked out. He then stomped down to the pastor's office and threatened to sue him and press charges. After consulting with Julie again, the pastor reported what Sean had told his mother to police. And while this ordeal was going on, Bob was trying to convince Julie not to press charges against his brother and that he would just get him counseling instead. Detective Belusky took statements from Sean and Julie, and on January 19, 1994, he drove to Barjona's apartment to interview him. Barjona gave a lot of incriminating statements and said he may have touched Sean, but he might have been blacked out or dreaming when it occurred. He also admitted to kidnapping and trying to kill two boys in Massachusetts. This is what finally put him on the radar for Montana police. The following day, Detective Belusky got a warrant for his arrest and detained him at the Antique Mall around noon. A Cascade County judge decided that David was a risk to the community and should remain in jail until his trial. On March 1st, the judge agreed to lower his bail to $10,000, though, and he dropped his public defender and hired a notable defense attorney. His attorney then hired a former Los Angeles police officer turned private investigator. This investigator interviewed Julie Watkins on May 10th and found that she was very sympathetic to the man who had molested her son. She was sympathetic, apparently, because of the fake, horrific experiences Barjona claimed to have had, like being raped at age 10 and being gang-raped by guards in jail. The same stories he used to get released from prison in 1991. Julie's letter reads, quote, My name is Julie Watkins, and I want to say that my wish has always been for Barjona to get probation and to receive counseling. I feel very strongly that Sean testifying would have an adverse effect on him emotionally. He does not want for Barjona to be in jail and never did. He would still like to be Barjona's friend under a supervised situation such as my being present for the most part. Sean harbors no ill will towards Barjona. I feel Barjona has been through a lot in his life, and jail would only increase the problems he has, and counseling would help with all of the adversity he has had to face. I still feel Barjona is a good person for the most part, but needs to have control in his life that would make him get the help he needs. These are my own words and beliefs, and I have not been influenced in any way. Signed, Julie Watkins, May 1994. A judge ordered Barjona to undergo a sexual offender evaluation, which was conducted by a counseling group affiliated with the Assembly of God, a church that his own defense lawyer was a member of. They concluded that Barjona suffered from PTSD as a result of the assault at age 10 and gang rape by prison guards. They suggested he may have multiple personality disorder because he experienced disassociative episodes. In the other portion of this evaluation, they tested Barjona to see if he became sexually aroused by sexually explicit stimuli involving children or depictions of violence associated with sexual activity. The test results showed, of course, that Nathaniel Barjona was the definition of a pedophile, but this counseling group thought that they could just counsel it out of him. Barjona's trial had been set for August 15th, but was postponed without establishing a new date. And during that time, the prosecution and defense reached an agreement, a deferred prosecution, which basically means as long as Barjona adheres to some rules set by the court and doesn't break any laws, the charges will be dismissed entirely. This was signed by both sides on April 24, 1996. After this, David's defense attorney saw a mistake by the courts and took this as an opportunity to file a motion to dismiss all charges because his client didn't get a speedy trial. 
I don't understand the exact legal loopholes or arguments that granted this because I'm not a lawyer, but the gist is all of his charges were officially dropped and the state believed there was no way they could come out on top if they challenged it. Here's a statement from the assistant district attorney in part, quote, the state believes there was a probable cause to file these charges. Upon review of the entire factual situation, the state does not believe that sufficient evidence currently exists upon which to obtain a conviction, as the mother of the child victim does not want him to testify. Therefore, a dismissal of this matter would be in the interests of justice. Dr. Espy wrote that Julie Watkins, however, was going to allow her son to testify in court, which does contradict her letter a little bit. And if that's true, it seems like Barjona was let off because of a huge miscommunication between Julie and prosecutors, and of course, a lot of other biased circumstances in favor of this child molester. Julie ended up taking her son and moving out to Southern California because she was in fear of Barjona seeking revenge. A memo from the Cascade County Attorney's Office states that Nathaniel Barjona spent six months in jail. This would put his date of release around July or August of 1994. Fast forward to February of 1996, two months before all of the charges would officially be dropped. In addition to running an antique business, he'd become a shift supervisor at the 10th Avenue Hardee's. When he wasn't working, Bar Jonah was watching children get off the bus at local elementary and middle schools, and one of the children he watched was 10-year-old Zachary Ramsey. And that's where we're going to leave off. There will be a part two covering the disappearance of Zach Ramsey. So please come back for that next Thursday. I'm so sorry to end it here, but Zach Ramsey was literally the case that I wanted to focus on, but I got so deep in the research and I, and I didn't realize that Barjona had done all of these things prior. So I could have wrapped up this episode in just one part, but I wouldn't be doing Zach Ramsey's case any justice by that. So that's going to be in part two and a bunch of other stuff is going to be in part two. I just got the phone number of a psychic who helped with that case, um, might be calling them. I don't know. We'll see where that goes. But anyways, before I go, I do want to give a shout out to the new Patreon members. Thank you so much to Strawberry Cat and Lula. Thank you all so much for becoming Patreon members, and don't forget to tune in next Thursday for part two of this episode. I will literally be packing up my entire life and driving across the country on that day, so I'm glad I have a head start. Wish me luck for that. Anyways, I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.